Hello and welcome to Serial Casting. This is the podcast produced by Orthopaedic Research UK in association with the Royal College of Podiatry. I'm Gavin Spence, paediatric orthopaedic surgeon, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Michalis Kokonakis. Michalis, we're in the same country for once. This is fantastic. Hopefully it should make the podcast a little easier. So yeah, tell us who you got lined up as our guest today. First of all, welcome back to the UK, Gavin. It's so nice to have you back here. We're delighted today to have an NHS consultant, podiatrist, surgeon uh, who works in uh, Homerton Hospital for many years. And he is going to talk to us a bit more about his practice. We can explore collaboration with orthopedic surgeons and so many other things. So please welcome Ryan McCallum. Hi, Ryan. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me. Great. So, Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about your role at the moment? Your official title is your consultant podiatric surgeon and, and you're at Homerton Hospital out in East London. That's that's an interesting part of the world to work, I that's, would imagine. What, what's in the That's what, definitely one way of putting it. It's, a, it's almost like its own little region in itself. Yeah, so I've been at Homerton now in a consultant capacity for the last eight years or so. My role is exclusively in the conservative and surgical management of foot and ankle pathology, although my specific role within the team is obviously as the lead surgeon. And we treat the vast majority of patients being adults. Uh, we do treat paediatrics. And my workload is probably a 90%, split, 90%, 10% split between elective foot surgery and then perhaps 10% limb salvage. So we do a lot of diabetic limb salvage surgery at Homerton Hospital. We have a pretty small team there. There's myself, and then I have two juniors. I have a surgical trainee, and then we have a, a staff podiatrist that works as part of the team as well. Yeah, so my role really, my week is divvied up between outpatients and, and theatre, and then I have a private practice in central London on an occasional basis as well. In terms of the team that works with you at Homerton, did you set that team up, or was that a team already up and running that you then well, joined? No, the, the team was long established before I arrived. As it happens, only one person who was there when I arrived remains, and that's not for, not for any other reason other than retirement or the others progressing into different roles elsewhere. So I inherited a team. I was probably a little bit naive where I did my surgical training. I stayed there for many years. I was there 12 years, and I thought everywhere would be exactly the same. So I uh, moved to Homer and thought everyone would be identical to where I was before. And yeah, slowly but surely, I've been able to exert more of an influence on uh, my way of practice into the team. And as it's only three of us, it's hopefully and usually not too difficult to keep people working off uh, the same hymn sheet. So where were you before, Ryan? Where did so you do your training? I, when I first graduated my undergraduate degree in podiatry, I worked in Belfast for a short period of time. Um, and then I moved, I was offered a job uh, at West Middlesex Hospital. And that's uh, probably safe to say it's it's probably the premier century in, in the country for podiatric surgery. So I was fortunate enough to get a job there and went through the entirety of my surgical training there. It was a slightly unique position in that for most people, they'll start off with a surgical trainee post, then move elsewhere for registrar training. But I did all of mine at West Middlesex and actually ended up uh, as a consultant there for a short period of time before moving full-time to Homerton. So may I ask you, I mean, obviously, Gavin and I are orthopedic surgeons, and unfortunately, I said unfortunately, we have not worked formally with uh, podiatrists just because on the hospitals we worked so far, and is that right? For, the same is for you, Gavin. Have you ever worked with podiatrists before? No, I, I think podiatrists and 
foot foot and ankle specialists, which we are not, we're pediatric specialists. That that's a far more established model. And I've what I have learned about how you guys work together, I've learned from my foot and ankle colleagues, and and they speak very highly of the collaboration. So we're really impatient to learn what we can, how we can work with you. And I, I know I'm, I'm dead curious to know what your surgical training was like mm. and see how it was different to ours. Absolutely, that was my question. So tell us a bit more about how was your training, and also tell us. Are there any alternative routes to become a consultant podiatric uh, surgeon here in the UK uh, for all of those junior or even senior colleagues who are listening to us? Yeah, it's it's a pretty unique process and it has evolved even in, um, I still consider myself relatively young, but it's evolved even since, since my time. My training involved a master's degree, well, first of all, undergraduate degree, obviously, master's degree in the theory of podiatric surgery. And that at the time was relatively new and that encompassed the professional surgical exams up to the point of hands-on practice. So once you have completed uh, the first one or two years of the MSc at the time, I then was fortunate enough to get a job within a surgical unit. I mean, then my role there then progressed into a formal podiatric surgical trainee which essentially is where uh, you work within the unit as an integral part of the team and you're taught how to do the surgeries. Um, you know, you're working the whole time, as I imagine you guys have with your juniors under direct supervision. Um, and then there are a couple more surgical exams, the final being a practical exam where two visiting consultants come in and observe you conduct a surgical list for half of a day. And then from that point, you're elected or nominated for election onto the uh, as a fellow of the Faculty of Podiatric Surgery. Now, at the time, you like to consider yourself a fully-fledged qualified surgeon, but you're really not. At that point, you're moving into a registrar role or hopefully uh, successfully attaining a, a registrar role, which is another three years of supervised practice. Again, I would imagine that's fairly similar to your registrars, a bit more responsibility, you know, able to do a bit more in terms of complex work, but still very directly supervised. And after another three years or so, you should hopefully achieve your certificate of completion of training. And then you can apply for a consultant role if if you're lucky enough that one comes up. Uh, now, the training has changed since then. Uh, it's, it's become a lot more formalized. Uh, there was a process of annotation not so long ago with the HCPC, who are our governing body. And now the role or the, the process involves the same undergraduate degree, the same masters in podiatrics, uh, masters of science and the theory of podiatric surgery, but the the actual training system that was just run purely by the hospital when I was there is now a second master's degree, a master's in podiatric surgery, and then the process is fairly similar thereafter. So that the master's in podiatric surgery is a new concept run by Huddersfield University where they undertake all of their exams through the university. So how many years does someone need um, to, to get to become a registrar? And then roughly, did I get right? Is anything between five and six years as a registrar? And then you can apply as a consultant. So the reg is norm, sorry, minimum of three years as a registrar. Um, from start to finish, really, from undergraduate all the way through. And I've, I think I have gone through, or I did go through the process pretty quickly. 10, 11 years from start to consultant, really. That's pretty long time, yeah. isn't it? Okay, Um I wanted to ask, how many hospitals roughly are there in the UK where there's an established podiatric team and roughly how many 
surgical podiatrist we have in the country, if you know the numbers. I, I'm only saying, like, for example, you know, it's it's such a shame that, you know, guys, and, um, I shouldn't say about guys and Thomas, I share about Evelina, London Children's Hospital, where I work, mm. I don't know about the adults, we don't have any podiatrists, and I, I just want to uh, see then how how easy, how difficult it is to um, set up a podiatric team there if we don't have one. Uh, yeah, the numbers I, I don't have, um, I would estimate it probably... 40, 50 consultants, maybe in the, less, perhaps in, in the country. It, it's a real challenge. It's one of those situations at the minute where jobs come up when someone retires rather than new services being developed. Now, that happens very occasionally, but it's, it's a struggle at the minute for those coming through in terms of being particularly positive about job prospects, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but, but not, man, not many. Some services are closing down. But yeah, it, it's it's a difficult a difficult time, I think. Ryan, I wanted to ask about this collaboration between orthopedics and podiatry, particularly on the surgical mm. side, because it's it has an interesting history to it. I mean, my foot and ankle colleagues, surgeons, orthopedic surgeons who work with podiatrists and podiatric mm. surgeons, are very positive. In fact, one of them I, I worked quite closely with in my last job. He was a pains to point out to me that actually all of the innovations in foot and ankle surgery, shall we say, had come from podiatric surgeons, not from orthopedic mm. surgeons. What has been your experience and your your relationship with orthopedic colleagues and, and how that's integrated with the team? And please be as honest as you said no, no. before we started this podcast. You're going to be honest and straightforward. So cards on the table. How, how has it been? And, and how do you think there's room for improvement? And if so, how, how can we do yeah, that? It's- well, historically, it has been, I think to put it mildly, a very strained relationship between the two specialties, ranging from out-and-out hostile to friendly. So you've got a, a, a whole mixture. And I've had, um, I've seen the best, uh, the good world and the bad world, really, initially. I mean, where I worked in 12, 13 years, really, I mean, I virtually had... No conversations with any of the foot and ankle orthopedic team, uh, certainly none that were particularly friendly. Numerous experiences of antagonistic behaviour with uh, mutual patients. Uh, and ultimately what happens is the patients get caught in the middle, which is the, you know very easily forgotten when tempers flare, that the only reason we're there is to help patients. Where I work at the minute, I'm very fortunate. We have two foot and ankle orthopedic surgeons at Homerton Hospital, and I have a good working relationship with both. Now, it's pretty informal uh, we don't do joint clinics we don't have shared clinics i have my patient group they have theirs but you know i'm uh, fairly frequently knocking their door asking for opinions and and actually one of them has has helped me with a key a challenging complication that i had in the past um he came to theater and assisted me so i'm probably i would like to think that that good relationship is becoming more common and um, but i'm certainly in a, in a reasonably fortunate position that you know where we work it does work well, and there's a lot of respect between the two teams. But certainly, historically, it's been very strained, and it remains that way. You know, there's a lot of. I do a bit of medical legal work, and again, I, I see that nasty relationship creep up in medical legal work as well, where you know people are not necessarily as impartial as they should be, purely because the person their defence was treated by one or the other. So, it, it there definitely improvements are required. I, I think like most aspects in life, power and money control. And ultimately, you know, there's a lot of work for everybody and there's 
Now, I'm never afraid to ask anyone, regardless of their job role or their position, if I think that I can learn from them. And I spoke to Michaela a, a, a week or two ago, and I was saying I'd be absolutely delighted to use this opportunity, almost from, not necessarily purely selfish, but to, to learn from, from him and learn from his experience, because you know I certainly do a lot of things that a lot of my own colleagues don't do, uh, and vice versa. And you know, I think it takes a level of maturity for for everyone just to, you know, bring bring it back to basics and realize why we're doing the job in the first place. Can I just say I said the same thing to Ryan? I'd I'd, I'd be delighted to go uh, and see him at Homerton Hospital operating because he's got a different perspective than what I do. He's got a different training, and I'm pretty sure it can work mutually because that's just how it works. And Kevin and I strongly believe uh, that collaboration through different disciplines can only work towards the best benefits of uh, uh, the physicians involved, but also to the best benefits of the patient. Yeah. There's no doubt. So tell us, uh, Ryan, what kind of a range of um, foot and ankle diagnosis do you uh, treat? And I, I'm very much interested. There's going to be surgeons listening to this podcast as well. If I want to get a podiatrist in our own hospital, well, what do I say to our, to our service managers? How do I make a business case? Do I go and say, okay, so these are the conditions that, that can be treated. I work in a pediatric hospital, but in general, mm. there's going to be a lot of adult podiatrists listening to us. What kind of conditions does a surgical podiatrist treat and how can we establish a business case on a, an institution where we don't have such a service? So, so again, I was fortunate. Where I did my training, we covered pretty much everything from ingrowing toenails to arthritic ankles. A lot of podiatric surgical services can't offer the full spectrum of treatment, A, because of perhaps deficits in training, but also the fact that they work in a community setting where they may not have access to general anaesthesia and therefore the facilities don't necessarily support the the riskier side of the more complex side of uh, surgical treatment of pathology. So I was fortunate in that I have no experience outside of a a large hospital uh, and so uh, to me it, it, it's the norm but i do appreciate that uh, it's probably not the norm across the board and it's maybe more of not so much an exception but a fortunate position that i'm in and um, so i i generally treat pretty much anything within the foot in terms of uh, pathology that's non-traumatic i might see the odd case of cold trauma sort of a missed fifth met fracture for example may come in down the line or one that was managed some time ago didn't heal and the patient was lost to follow-up but i don't certainly don't do trauma surgery as i said i do quite an amount of diabetic limb salvage surgery and that's anything from incision and drainage to amputation forefoot amputations things like that most of my elective work on the forefoot as i think any foot and ankle surgeon would do because that's where most of the pathology in the foot is I treat a reasonable amount of flat foot deformity. I don't do a huge amount of pes cavus because I don't, I don't think anyone sees, unless you're working in a unit that specialises in neuroorthopaedic practice, then you're not going to see a huge amount of pes cavus, but I see it, see it now and again. But yeah, generally elective bunions, toes, arthritic joints, flat foot deformity, and then the diabetic side of things. And how is it decided when, when a patient's referred to your hospital? Who, who they, they come and see you or they come and see one of your orthopaedic colleagues? How do you, how do you divide up the work? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, and I'm not sure anyone truly knows. We've asked the question lots of times because always there's a, I mean, as much as I like my orthopaedic colleagues, you know, I have my priority as my department and my team and my training of my juniors and my own surgical uh, development. So it really depends on where the referral comes from. So I have a, a 
good network. The local community podiatry team have will used to actually be part of the same directorate in our trust. So I think they tend to refer. I'd like to think they refer to me their their, their surgical caseload. At GPs, I guess it comes down to who will offer the first appointment, good experiences, bad experiences. I mean, you, you guys will know yourselves. You might work with a colleague and you've done something that you thought was right and for reasons that can't be explained sometimes, it doesn't work. And a GP will pick up a negative experience. They will, I'll not be referring to that guy or that lady anymore. And uh, I suppose preferences, but a, a bit of a mixture, both where it goes and why it goes where. Other than that, I couldn't explain that. So I've got another uh, practical question. So um, you've got your team. Mm. What about plastic technician? Do you put all your casts and remove all the casts yourselves? Or do you work with the plastic technician together like the orthopedic surgeon would do? So, yeah, I um, depending on the nature of the surgery, if it's a, an, an immediate post-op cast, plaster paris, I'll put that on in theatre occasionally, depending on the list is running. But we have a good plaster technician support, so they'll do all subsequent casts. They'll take them on, they'll take them off. I think for the orthopedic team, they even do dressing changes and wound checks and things. I'm a bit obsessive, and yeah, well, I am a bit obsessive. I don't think there's any other way of putting it. I'm quite particular, and some people would say pedantic about things. So I, I, I do all, I my team do all of our post-op dressings, wound care, but cast application removal, there's a good plaster technician set up in the hospital. And what about rehabilitation? Do you um, refer to, let's say, community physiotherapists or physiotherapists in the hospital? Or do you take over their rehabilitation? Tell us a bit more about this. Yeah. I, I, or does it depend on the condition it, that you're treating? It very much depends on the condition and also the patient as well. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, just to pick something simple and common, we'll say relatively simple, hallux valgus, for example, I mean, a range of motion exercises post-op are so paramount and, and they need to be done every single day, several times. So a physiotherapist is never going to see someone every day for six weeks. So certain things just need to be done on a daily basis. However, there are patients I find that are more apprehensive than others. And I just they, we just know that they're never going to do the things that we tell them to do. So the physiotherapists are excellent at showing these patients really how safely and how farly they, they can push things. Something like a flat foot correction where a patient has been immobilized for up to a couple of months, they all go to the physiotherapy department and the physiotherapy department at Homerton is, well, my experience of it is that they've been really, really helpful and they're, they're super supportive. Excellent. And then other cases where you would refer to your orthopedic colleagues where you could say, okay, well, that's now the limitation. Are there limitations for surgical podiatrists um, or... Is it more about collaboration and, you know, like we would go to another, I mean, even for us, not we don't do everything. So there's going to be times where we refer, there's going to be times individually where we're going to say, well, that's now our limitations uh, reached. Yes, um, there are certainly cases. I mean, what I use my colleagues a lot for is just simply a second opinion. I mean, I work as a sole consultant in my department and as confident as I am on the majority of occasions, sometimes the reassurance of someone saying, no, that sounds reasonable, or I think you've maybe missed this, or have you ever thought of that? Uh, you know, I refer reasonably frequently for reasons of or purposes of second opinion. I think, and this is where I'll be interested in hearing your guys' perspective, I think there are certainly cases where I have to say, well, I am not the best person to be doing this this procedure. I've never done it before. I've never seen it before. Doesn't mean that I couldn't do it, but you know, I'm not the best person to be doing it. And I take that approach certainly with, with kids sometimes. 
that's not to say that kids are the most important patients and adults aren't but for me a child's surgery should be done by the most experienced person in the department and i i would never let my trainee do any of an operation on a child's foot i i struggle to let them do surgery on an adult's foot because you're watching thinking my goodness I could do it quicker, I could do it better, you know, it's hard to let go of control. I'd love to know how you guys let your trainees or how you feel about letting your trainees do important parts of important surgeries on little kids because obviously if that goes wrong, that's a you know, that's their whole life. They've got to potentially cope with a something surgical that didn't work. It's very interesting you bring that up because that was gonna be my question to you when you mentioned about having trainees. Michaelis and I were both very interested in training, but as you have pointed out Brian it is stressful having a, a trainee who is often straining at the leash they're desperate to, to do the operation now that's fine and we we all three of us have been in that position ourselves yeah. but there is a person in that room and it's now one of us three who is going to take responsibility for what happens at the end of this operation mm-hmm. even though it's not your hands on the patient and and yeah it is it is a highly stressful thing to do there are huge rewards mm-hmm. in it there's nothing better than having a the operation done perfectly by a trainee that's like that's nirvana in, in, in training as far as i'm concerned but how do you reach that i mean from my point of view we, we have quite a structured way of doing it in orthopedic surgery so what is supposed to happen you know this is down to the the interest of the trainer we are supposed to understand from our trainees portfolio what they have done up until that point nobody's going near a patient until a discussion has been had about what have you done in the past and then any operation can be broken down into its component steps. And I have a, a friend who's a neurosurgeon who says there is no such thing as a non-training operation. You know, even if what he's going to do inside the skull is super complicated, you still get the trainee down to talk about positioning the patient, preparing, even op- opening the skull or, you know, whatever. You know, there's always something that, that can and should be done. It's about the preparation. It's about breaking up into steps and it's about having agreed rescue plans. So, you know, the, the trainee feels able to say i'm stuck you know I'm, mm. I'm struggling here can you come in without them feeling like they've they've messed up and not yeah. delivered and of course we have the added pressure that you know it's kids we, we operate yeah. on kids and and we do have to take trainees through kids yeah. operations so uh, yeah it's, it's a tough one. Uh, I, I remember yeah. back to my training days that the trust is such a massive part of this isn't it really i remember on several occasions just saying guys can someone go and get prof Tego because i'm not happy with this it was my consultant at the time he'd come in he'd say you know that is something that you should not have done you knew that the nurses knew that but you still knew that it was the right thing to do to ask for help and whilst you shouldn't have done what you did that made me trust you more because i knew that there wouldn't be anything that you would just close your eyes say i hope it'll be okay because if you have to hope it's going to be okay it's not going to be the best it's ever going to be is on the table and if it's not right then it is not going to be right and not you know that is as good as it gets so I think trust is a massive thing. And I think what you said as well, Gavin, about breaking things down into sections, you know, I remember again, you know, surgical trainees love to say, oh, I did this procedure for the first time or I've done loads of this procedure. Well, quite frankly, I don't care how many you've done. I care whether you did them well enough. And my my training, certainly, you know, my tutor was a, a real perfectionist and He'd always said to me, you know, you may not do as much as your colleagues elsewhere, but trust me, you will do what you do well. And that's what's important. And I suppose from a pediatric point of view, I maybe did bits and bobs during my training, nothing overly important. I might have put in a bit of metal work or, you know, whatever, saw some soft tissue stuff. But 
it's knowing how to do it and knowing what to do when things go wrong. And then once the responsibility is on your shoulders, then you decide whether or not you're comfortable doing the work. But it's definitely a difficult one. I think one more thing that I do anyway is to teach them about principles. Mm. Because sometimes, as you say, during your your training is going to be limited. It's going to be, I don't know, a year, two years, whatever. So you're not going to be able to see all procedures that you're going to be facing later as a consultant, Mm. or you might not be doing enough. But if you know the principles and you... I think for me as a trainer, it's important to make them confident about what they're doing. So preparation, preparation, teach them the principles. But even if they have not done the operation, when they're out there, okay... They can put down the principles, they can prepare themselves, and then they can do even sometimes something for the first time. And Kevin and I joke about this sometimes. I mean, it's not uncommon for us pediatric orthopedic surgeons to do operations for the first time, mm. just because we have to deal with all kind of weird and uncommon things. Yeah. And that is an important thing to uh, to teach yeah. during uh, training. Yeah, I mean, again, I, anyone who's ever heard me lecture, I barely do a lecture without harping on about one size does not fit all. And even if you've done an operation before, doesn't mean it's going to be exactly the same the second time around. But in terms of doing things for the first time, you know, I'm a big believer that podiatric surgery has a long way to go to bring standards up and bring the scope of practice up in terms of some people are only limited to doing four foot stuff. And ultimately that will never happen unless people are able to do things for the first time. It doesn't mean they can't get a colleague to come and hold their hand through it, visit them, whatever. But yeah, doing things for the first time is is it has to be based upon principles. And I agree entirely with you, gents. Time is marching on, and um, the king is being crowned as we speak. I'm sure you're desperate to get your TVs and wave your flags. Um, things how um, Ryan, you mentioned about hearing you lecture, yeah. uh, gents. Can you just tell us a little bit because you you are collaborating on one of the webinars in this series that's uh, running between Orthopedic Research UK and Royal College of Podiatry. Just in the, the closing minutes, can you tell us a little bit about what that's going to involve, um, Michaelis? Maybe let's so your. Th- your- leading on it Let, t- tell us about it thanks so much Gavin so this is a six weeks online course that the Orthopedic Research UK is doing in collaboration with the Royal College of Podiatry you can find all the links on both websites on Orthopedic Research UK and Royal College of Podiatry basically every Monday from seven to nine uh, for two hours uh, we're going to go through a very relevant topic to uh, foot and ankle conditions in the pediatric population we have uh, esteemed guests uh, on every uh, Monday night. Uh, usually we have a podiatrist and a surgeon or a- another physician so we can show the uh, collaboration that can happen but also to uh, hear very interesting uh, uh, opinions. So Ryan is uh, going to be our esteemed guest on the webinar about bunions and we're going to go through mainly bunions but we're going to go through about a lot of four feet uh, conditions is that right Ryan? Okay, that was my understanding of it yeah excellent so um, we're going to tell you a lot about how podiatrists but also how uh, orthopedic surgeons treat the same group of uh, pediatric patients but from a different perspective and we're going to explore as I say different ways how we can uh, collaborate so we can all learn from this. So I hope that most of our listeners will uh, tune in and will attend, uh, if not all, most of the the webinars because we put a lot of effort to this to uh, present uh, you guys with highly educational uh, value events.
Well, great. Thanks, gents, for, for telling us about that. It's, it's going to be a, a great webinar, I think. And Ryan, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for, for joining us. We've really just scratched the surface, but we, hopefully we can go into more detail in the webinar and beyond that. Michaelis, thanks for your help, as always. Thanks for your input. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it and hope to have your company on another podcast in the near future. Thanks very much. Goodbye.